we'd like a word. About writing history. You're listening to We'd Like a Word with me, Paul Waters. And me, Stephen Colgan. And we have two guests on the show. Although it's a little bit unusual because I recorded them at the Jaipur Literary Festival in London. And they are Shashi Tharoor and William Dalrymple. Indeedy. And if you hear snoring, it's not me, it's not Steve, it's not Shashi and it's not William. Who is it? No, it's a um, it's it's a five-year-old pug called Harrison and um, he's asleep in his bed right next to us at the moment because we're recording this in my house today for a change. Yeah, a small dog snoring. How do I put up with these insults? And we are, our recorder has got a special recording arrangement. It's got a, a banana bipod, as in it's being <laughs> it's being held in place by a couple of strategically placed bananas. I will post some photographs on the. So uh, maybe we should website. say this is uh, sponsored by um, Fife's or by, something. By, uh, I don't know, or fair trade bananas. Anyway, they are fair trade bananas. Yes, it must be said. So we'll be hearing from uh, Shushi Thoreau, prolific author, international diplomat. Congress MP in India, former government minister, and uh, he was in, at the United Nations. And he ran for general secretary he at one did. point. Yeah, I mean, he did. He's quite an important bloke. Arguably did not get it because the Americans wanted someone a bit more biddable mm. after Kofi Annan, so they blocked him. Indeedy. And William Dalrymple, who's writes about all sorts of things, but particularly India and Indian art and Indian culture. So there will be an Indian flavour to this, but not just about India. We'll be talking a bit about our own involvement in history, and I did a history degree, although it was African and Caribbean history, but I studied studied a lot of history, so Southern, West African history in particular, a bit of East African history and Caribbean history. But I read a lot of it all the time, Irish history, a lot more Indian history these days. Yeah, I would imagine. South yes, American. Yeah. Do you do much of that stuff? Um, English history. Well, British. Let's be more. Let's be more general. I read a lot of stuff to do with historic customs. I've got a particular interest in traditional British customs. Like I love all these mad things that go on. Mm. <laughs> you know, like uh, a couple of days ago we had the Abbot's Bromley Horn Dance and things like that. You know, where these where these bunch of guys go into a church, grab these huge sets of antlers, and then go prancing around a village for a whole day. Some of them have been resurrected during the sort of 30s and 40s, some even as recently as the sort of 1970s. But a lot of them have their roots going right back into really, really ancient history. And, and the more you start reading about it, it starts pulling in all sorts of different aspects of, of British history. There's an awful lot of May Day songs that feature Robin Hood. Uh-huh. And you think, why? What's that? You know, I mean, my own hometown in Cornwall, Helston, the very first verse of the Hallan Tower, which is a kind of mumming play which goes around the town. Starts with Robin Hood and Little John. They both have gone to Pharaoh. And he was nowhere near. No, no. I mean, because Robin Hood, we associate obviously with Nottinghamshire and things like that. But the the thing is that if you go back in history and you look at things like, you know, even before the Acts of Enclosure, you've got a bunch of Norman lords who came over here and said, this bit of land's mine, put fences around the outside and said, hey, you peasants, you've always gone into the woods to get your food, you know, your hares and your deer and your boar and that. You can't have them anymore because they belong to me. And so people didn't see, even though they could be hanged for, for poaching, you know, they would go into the woods and they'd still poach. 
And when they were caught, they did, still didn't feel as if they'd done anything wrong. And that's where this kind of thing about robbing from the rich to give to the poor and all that sort of thing. And that ties in with, you know, old superstitions about the green man and Robin Goodfellow. And sort of Robin Hood kind of grew out of that. And then that legend got attached to a couple of possible individuals, you know, like Robin of Loxley and people like this. I, I love their parallels as well of rules like that. I, I suppose peasants in England, and they remind me of penal laws, I, I guess, against the Irish and particularly against yeah, yeah. Catholics in Ireland, and parallels then with, I suppose, other British colonial occupations, hearing about parallels in Malawi the other day. But also, so many of these historical things are invented quite recently. Oh, yeah. So they like to say resurrected. Yeah. But I think lots of the Irish, Celtic myth and legend seems to have been kind of invented about 150 years ago in this... Oh, absolutely. Celtic twilight of people going from Dublin into the West and kind of, I don't know, a bit hippie-ish. Mm. And, you know... Oh, hey. it definitely rode in on the back of the sort of new age mm. and things like this. And, I mean, there were really... I mean, a lot of people don't realise there was no race called the Celts. There really wasn't. There were, there were lots and lots of individual tribes and little individual kingdoms. And there was some shared language between some of them. But you've just got to look at the difference between... Irish, Scots, Cornish, Welsh, Breton, French, Manx. There's similarities. They all come from the same root, but they're all different languages. There was no Celtic nation as such. Mm-hmm. But that sort of stuff fascinates me. And the coincidence you find when so many of these completely distinct and unique historical traditions have very, very, very similar <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, aspects to ones across. I suppose that's the same with religion. But let's come, come back to some of these things. Let's hear from Indeed. our guests. So we're going to hear first from Shoshi Thurur, who is uh, all those things, international diplomat, politician, author, one of the first people in India to really get into social media, funnily enough. And um, I asked him about writing history and what first got him into writing history and about being a historian. Well, I'm not sure I, I call myself a historian. I, I had a passion for history as a student, did my undergraduate honours degree in, in history, but then moved on to what was called international affairs, political science and, and, and international law and so on all put together, and then um, went into not quite the world of conclusions, but the world of, of action of, of the United Nations, of serving refugees and in the peacekeeping domain. So I was a bit far away. I suppose the first book of mine that would have traces of history would have been my novel, The Great Indian Novel, which um, actually looked into the freedom struggle, the Indian nationalist movement, but told it as a fictional, as a satire, through the prism of one of our ancient epics, the Mahabharata. So I'm not quite sure that qualifies as history because it was, after all, fiction. My PhD thesis, which was actually my first ever book, was a look back at uh, Prime Minister Indira Gandhi's foreign policy making. But one could argue in, in true Oxonian style that that was too contemporary to be qualified as history. So then you come up to my book, India from Midnight to the Millennium in 1997, which was a, a sweeping survey of the first 50 years of India's independence. And since that brought it up right to the present day, you could say there was a fair bit of history and a fair bit of contemporary politics uh, as well thrown in. And again, it was a very personal take on India's trajectory since independence. No footnoting, no uh, scholarship. It was really a personal view of those 50 years of India's independence. Of another novel called Riot, which again reinvented a real episode from recent history. 1989, there was a riot, which I retold 
12 years later in a fictionalized form. But I would say my first work of what a historian might recognize as a serious attempt at historical research was a short biography of Jawaharlal Nehru, the first prime minister of India, which meant essentially doing an enormous amount of reading about him, as, as historians would do, including his own speeches, correspondence, and so on. Fortunately, all of which are published, so one need, didn't need to go and dig them up in archives. They're all available. And that revealed to my publishers, I suppose, and to some degree to myself, that I did have a capacity for distilling vast amounts of information and finding patterns in them for a popular audience. Shashi Tharoor, he's, he's done a lot of stuff. He really has. What a great voice as well. Yeah. I love that voice. I'd, I'd like to hear him you know, narrate an audio book. I think he'd do a good audio book. So a lot of books mentioned there. The one that grabbed people as a history book actually was a speech. He made a speech at the Oxford Union. That had such an impact it was filmed that they said, right, we, we need you to write a book about this. Well, the thing about a speech is that once it's been on YouTube for one, two, three, five years, history, science, all those things, they've, they've got a kind of sell-by date. Things change. You know, the longer something's online, the more chance there is that the things that the person was talking about may have changed in the in the interim. This but then there's a cycle as well. There or, is. Or, or a circular that you may make an obscure speech that has no impact, not like this one, which did have an impact, and then it just lurks there waiting for its moment. Yeah, absolutely. Imagine if you'd done a speech about something to do with the Queen last week, for example. You know, and then, whoa, history suddenly catches up with you. Well, let's hear about the speech that became the book. Here's Shashi. Then I got dragged into a debate at the Oxford Union on British colonialism in India. Is this inglorious empire you're so leading up to? And, and up. the title might give you a bit of a hint as to your slant. Inglorious empire, what the British did to India. So what happened was I, I delivered the speech. It went viral with three million views in the first uh, 24 hours of it being uploaded by the Oxford Union. And my publishers promptly called me up and said, you've got to make a book out of this. And I said, don't be silly. Everyone knows all this stuff already. To which his answer was, no, they don't, because if they did, your speech wouldn't have gone viral. So it was a book that emerged from a speech. And, and I realized that whereas in a speech I was free to air my opinions, a book would require considerable substantiation. So I got back into, into research, and this time because the topic was so vast and serious and I was caught up in the throes of my political life and politics, I engaged a couple of researchers to start digging up academic material because, you know, finding sources from the period of the last of the 200 years of British rule was not difficult. A lot of it is available. Was there any point in the, creating the book as opposed to the speech where you had paused for thought to think, ah, Maybe I have to change my mind between what I said in the speech and what I put in the book. Was there, was there any, I don't know, refinement, let's say, or anything you got wrong? <laughs> I'd like to think not. I think there were minor aspects of detail in that in the speech. I think I said that the British had 25 million unnecessary deaths on their hands because of famines they, they caused and ran in India. It turned out the figure was actually 35 million. So my memory was less than perfect. But most of the arguments, not most, I think all the arguments that I had developed over years of sort of amateur reading and study uh, remained intact. What I got the researchers to do, however, was to make sure, uh, for my benefit, that the state of the art of academic research, which I was not familiar with because I wasn't in that world, hadn't moved way beyond what I'd written. So I would say, for example, to a researcher, get me whatever has been published in historical journals in the last five years about the British railway system in India, for example. 
and a lot of material would come and I would read all of that stuff or I would tell somebody else, what can you find me on the so-called drain theory? There was a, a theory that was articulated in the late 19th century about how much money the British had drained out of India. Shashi Thurur, oh, to have researchers. Well, we've both been researchers. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You in the police? All police officers have to be researchers to a degree because you have to gather together enough information in order to bring a prosecution. You know, that means sort of finding information from as many good sources as possible. And then, of course, moving into the world of QI and writing for TV shows like that. That was all about research. And you had to, again, check your sources because, I mean, there's so much disinformation and misinformation out there that you've, you've got to use multiple sources these days to, to be fairly sure. Even then, we had a couple slip through the net on QI. It Does is. it sear your soul even now? Yeah, very much so. Although what, it wasn't was in it? any of my shows. Wasn't I was delighted to say years, it wasn't about... Yeah, no, there was, one yeah. about, there was one about the um, unusual Olymp- Olympic events because, of course, the Olympics used to have all sorts of weird and wonderful things like... Painting. Painting, sculpture. I think uh, Ireland won the painting at the first yeah, Olympics. Yeah, live pigeon shooting. Yeah, I know. It's bizarre, isn't it? But one of our researchers had found a fact that there was dog grooming as well, or like poodle clipping or something like that. And, and, and no. they, they'd found three or four different sources no. that said so. But um, yeah, and I can't remember... And what, and the contestants were saying, I don't believe that. That can't well, be true. I said, well, no, it is. And well, it turned out not to be. Absolutely. Yeah, it turned out to be not true. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So that was, uh, that dear, was one. Oh but there aren't many that In your defence, though, you could say, anyone who took that seriously, come on. <laughs> Get him, catch a grip. Yeah, and, and to be fair, we were first notified it by one of the comedians as well, who uh-huh. obviously found it from a dodgy source. But, right. but who was that? Which comedian? Books, I'm not going to name names. Um, all I'll say is that he. No, no I won't. Know. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's um, no. I mean, it was well, that's good, one of the, the, the it joys. Was in good of, faith. It was in good faith of what what I do as well, especially. Making radio shows, I get to talk and doing this, doing this with you. We get to talk to interesting people about interesting things. We do. What could be better than that? But imagine having a team of researchers. Yeah, that'd be nice, wouldn't it? To like people like us mm. <laughs> do it for us. That there are there good. are so many issues. I mean, I, I remember I was coming out of the, out of London on a train one day, and there was a guy on his phone, very loud, sort of a few seats away from me. And he was moaning about the quality of his researchers. He was obviously doing something to do with, I think it was to do with the Lusitania. He was making a documentary about the Lusitania. It sank. Yeah, it sank. Yeah. And, and, there you go. And, uh, well, it was sunk, wasn't <laughs> okay, it? It was, it was sunk. sunk. It was but, sunk. But he was saying, you know, he said, I'm fed up with the quality of researchers we get. They come out of university, you think they'd be bright. And all they do is they just bring me printed out pages of Wikipedia. I don't no. want to know how long the bloody ship was. I want to know if any survivors existed and whether they wrote their accounts down. And yeah, yeah, I want yeah. to speak to, you know, people from the German side of things and what yeah, their story yeah, yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. And, and he had a very good point. It, it's, well, he could have. Done a bit of it himself, then he could call but himself a historian. Then again, uh, if he, if he's a producer or a director, I mean that's mm, not his job, is it? It's mm, it's kind of there are lines of demarcation in these mm, jobs. If you're going to do research, you have to do it properly. You have to do it thoroughly. And, the and thing then is, there's the whole the whole thing of research for fiction, as we both know. Yes, there are rabbit holes that oh, you can, so seductive, can go down, <laughs> and so from which you will never emerge. I, I have several mm. friends who you know, have been researching for years and still haven't written a word of their book. Well, Shashi's book has what first confused me when I was doing research for this. I thought, oh, two different books. In fact, the same book with two different titles. So the book that he's been talking about, different titles in the UK and India. So the Indian title of the book was An Era of Darkness, the British Empire in India. The British title was Inglorious Empire.
the British felt that era of darkness was too obscure. In India, it had echoes because it resonated with V.S. Naipaul's attack on India about an area of darkness. Inglorious Empire just told the audience what they could expect. It, it wasn't a case of sounding too strong for a British audience, was it? Well, the publisher will have to take the call on that, and the publisher suggested it. Uh, Michael Dwyer of, of Hearst uh, said, this is what your book is about. Why don't we just tell the world what it is? So I came up, I think, with the subtitle. They came up with the title. And I must say, it works so well that um, because the British, American, Australian, and so on editions are all called Inglorious Empire, many people assume that's the, 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 the principal title, the original title, whereas for the Indian readers, it is indeed an era of darkness. Shashi Thoreau and book titles. You've had adventures in different book titles. Um, well, I did. I did with one of them. I mean, it had two different titles, but both in the UK. That was a bit of a weird one. So, I, what's the logic? Well, then? when the hardback came out of "Why Did the Policeman Cross the Road," which is a non-fiction, semi-autobiographical, popular science book, I suppose, popular psychology book, all about problem solving and the future of policing and criminal psychology and stuff. Which is very good. Thank you very much. When it came out in hardback, it went out there and it did okay. But when uh, there was a partnership between my publisher and Penguin at the time, and Penguin, when they wanted to bring the paperback out, said, we've got issues with the title. Shops don't know where to put it because it's part autobiography, so some people have got it in that section. It's part to do with policing and the law, and they've got it in that rather dusty section. Other places have got it here, there, and everywhere. One Waterstones we went to actually had it in the joke section. <laughs> they thought it was a, yeah. So when it came out in paperback, they changed it to one step ahead, notes from the problem-solving unit. I do wonder how many, I feel a bit guilty. In fact, there may be people out there who bought both, thinking, hey, it, thinking it was two different books. But yes. hey, it's certainly not reflected in my bank statements. But... <laughs> <laughs> There are two people, two two guests on this podcast, and the other one is William Dalrymple, another prolific author and historian, I suppose an uplifter of Indian art as well, historical art, and one of the organisers of the Jaipur Literary Festival, which is uh, happens all around the world in New York, in London, in Belfast of all places, and a very appropriate place, excellent place where I'm from, places in the Indian Ocean, all sorts of, it's a great archipelago empire of literature appreciation. So let's bring in William Dalrymple. William Dalrymple, author of history books including White Muggles, The Last Muggle, The Fall of a Dynasty, Return of a King, The Battle for Afghanistan, Kuinor, The History of the World's Most Infamous Diamond with Anita Anand. I was at your launch for that. Very good uh, cocktails of that. Mm. And The Anarchy by the East India Company. I hope that when I die, people will remember that I serve good cocktails at my book launches. Yeah. <laughs> Even long after the books are forgotten. Yes. Cocktails so, will live on. <laughs> why is history important? The reasons that history are important are different from the reasons that I research, read and write history. The reason I read, write and research history is I'm obsessed with it. And it's fascinating. And... That's been true since I was, I think, as, as young as five, I remember. I mean, it used to be more sort of archaeology and ancient history. And my first ever trip to London was to see the Tutankhamun exhibition. And I loved archaeology from a very young age. And it's just the way my brain seems to be hardwired. I've always been obsessed with the past and loved imagining past ages and past empires and other cultures. Was there a particular first story that you remember that got you hooked? Tutankhamun, ancient Egypt was where it began. 
What uh, was it? The curse, the riches, the discovery? All that stuff. The curse, I think, and the, and, the, and, the, and the dog barking and Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon and all that stuff. But from that, it, it went on to standing stones. I discovered that, uh, you know, that there were standing stones and long barrows all around my home. I didn't have to go to London to see the to see it didn't come and there was amazing stuff in the fields and mountains around me in Scotland and I drove my parents crazy making them drive me to stone circles and, and, and long barrows and dunes and brochs and all the other stuff and from that to medieval history and from that when I went for the first time to India aged 18 to Indian history and I actually wrote something in a school notebook you know the, the, the class essay uh, uh, what would you like to be when you when you grow up I wanted to say I want to be an author and an archaeologist and I'm now a sort of historian and <laughs> writer which isn't so far away from that. Is it true that Indiana Jones is modelled on you? Uh, it's not true <laughs> but I loved it as a kid growing up. William Dalrymple <laughs> denies rumours that Indiana Jones is I just made although, that up. Although Harrison Ford and I of course look very like each other and I've often was just taken from it just exactly. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely. That wasn't what you asked me you asked me why is history important and, and, and in a sense yeah it's a very different thing from, from why I personally love history but the reasons I think we need to learn history is it contains all sorts of important information about being able to locate us where we are now in the same way you need a map to understand where you are geographically. You need to know, to be able to place yourself on the map historically, you'd know where you've come from. You can't know where, where you're going or where you are unless you know where you've come from. Although it seems that people are very keen to use that map not necessarily to know where they are but to know, to use it for where they have already decided they want to go, as in hijacking history or revising it or recruiting it to their political cause. And that's certainly the case in India at the minute, which you're an expert in. So so history is a very powerful weapon and very open to manipulation, uh, which is, again, another reason, in a sense, for, for the urgency to write history honestly and as far as whatever can without bias and and to tell the truth as completely as you can. And there are various parts of the world where history is an ongoing battle. Uh, I mean, most obviously at the moment in Ukraine, where the whole question of of Ukrainian nationhood and nationality is being questioned by Putin, uh, and and his questioning of Ukrainian nationhood is being backed by force of of weapons, and, 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 and people are dying every day for that. But Ukraine is not alone. Very similar case with Israel-Palestine, two completely different accounts of, of history. The Israelis talk about uh, a land without a people for a people without a land, how they came and turned the desert and made it bloom uh, and uh, built a wonderful socialist paradise in a desert. While the Palestinians point out there were 750,000 of them expelled and that they ended up in refugee camps and that the, this beautiful socialist paradise was built on the ruins of their villages. And that warfare over history has now broken out in a big way in India, and every day there, it, is, it is a totally current obsession of the current government to build, as so often with, with aggressive campaigns, on a sense of grievance, just like Hitler uh, oh. rose on uh, the sense that Germany had been cheated in, uh, at Versailles and had lost half its landmass, and, and the Germans uh, needed more uh, land, Lebensraum, for, 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 the, for the Volk. Well, well, so, so you've mentioned nationalists, uh, Putin... Um, Hitler, are ethno-nationalists or right-wing extremists, are they better at using history to their own ends than perhaps people who are more progressive? No, I think all forces can use history 
powerfully. And I think the the fact that ethno-nationalists and populists get so anxious about history shows, in a sense, what a what a powerful piece of moral high ground it is to hold. And uh, well, is there anyone uh, uh, on the opposite side from them who, who springs to mind as using it effectively? Well, the historical war, which in a sense I've been engaged in in, in the last 20 years, um, trying to give a version of imperial history that's not seeped in, in, in rose-tinted or sepia-tinted nostalgia and rooted in, in a sense of um, rationality. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm, I'm by no means alone. There's a whole rich body of historical work, some by Indians like Shashi Thurur, some by British Indians like Satnam Sangara, some by Brits like uh, John Wilson. William Dalrymple, I like that because it's the idea of history being some reserved for dusty libraries and obscure tomes, it's the, the, like urgency and current somebody could you know, punch you in the face or kill you for it. Well, that's something I'm very familiar with. Yeah, Disputed yeah. versions of history, where I'm from too. Lots of people kind of think history is not for them. It's it's nothing to do with us, the way we live. For me, knowing more about history brings tolerance and understanding and is a way of undermining feelings of certainty or certitude in your own rightness. And the idea that there's, you know, pure heritage, only one version of things. The more you know, the more enlightened potentially you could be, although... Yeah. I guess people use it as a tool. And that whole idea of the sort of the purity thing is just absolutely nonsense. There's a really, really good lecture by Stephen Fry just recently gone onto YouTube where he was speaking for Babel. So just look up Stephen Fry, Babel, you'll find it easily enough. Where he talks about the difference between trying to keep a language pure, as they do with like the Academy Francaise and people In like France, this, yeah. and our language, which is just made up of lots and lots of little bits and pieces. And, and it's like you said, if you... If you look at London as the English language and Paris as, as the French language, he said, London's so much more interesting because it's got all these little winding avenues and bits you don't expect and buildings stacked next to each other that, for, that are from different eras of architecture. Whereas as other cities, particularly sort of American cities, and which are much newer, or Paris and places like this, they're a bit more conservative, you know, and all stay in the same style and things like that. And he said, it just makes things more exciting. Well, I suppose the Americans buildings, I know I was talking to Gabriel Byrne, the Irish actor, and they were filming Los Angeles in the 30s in Barcelona because mm. uh, 1930s Los Angeles is gone now because the Americans every now and then they destroy the architectural heritage and, and build something new. So to find that period of America, you have to go somewhere else. But I think you're right about uh, American language being more conservative because often English people in particular say, why, you know, these appalling Americanisms, you know, why are they using these words or spelling things this way? Isn't, isn't it awful? Isn't it awful? Whereas, in fact, the American usage is the original English Absolutely usage right. yes. yeah. that has stuck. Whereas in England, the language has evolved and changed. And the Americans are the ones using the original versions. Absolutely. They're still using sort of the similar English to the, to the Pilgrim Fathers. It's, it's, you know, which is why they still call a waistcoat a vest. And, yeah, so stick uh, that in your long clay pipe. Yeah, although I'm still it. not going to forgive them for could care less, because that makes no sense at all. Yeah, well, you know. I could care less, really? Or herbs. I won't forgive them herbs either. Herbs, no. Well, what we can care about is that we have come to the end of part one 
of this episode on writing history with William Dalrymple and Shashi Tharoor. We'll be hearing more about them and some dramatic incidents in research, I suppose. The bullet through the windscreen, that sort of thing, which, spoiler alert, didn't kill one of our guests, because otherwise, how would we be talking to them? So you're listening to Weed Like a Word with him, me, and him, Stephen Colgan, and Paul Waters. Join us in part two.